0: Welcome to Common Ground Church, Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who He says He is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality rooted in Scripture and dependent on God's Spirit. Psalm 118 verse 1 says, O oh give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Please continue listening for today's message
1: things you share in confidence, eh? How many roast potatoes you eat is sacred. I shared that with you and you, oh, public shaming. Okay. No, I am having a bit of a carb coma right now, so hopefully God's power will be with us. Someone left me an Easter egg. Who wants it? Oh, there we go. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, Jeff, first one. Oh, stolen. Stolen by his wife. Wow. Joel, I'm impressed. Okay. They're basically, um, happy Easter, everyone. How are you doing? Yeah, it's been a rough start here. Okay, potatoes and all. I basically had kids for two reasons. One, so I had a reason to buy Lego. That was the first reason. The second reason was so that I could eat Easter eggs on Easter. And um, I've had many Easter eggs and many potatoes. So hopefully God... um, Bring some fire tonight, um, despite myself. And um, we are continuing our Easter series, Truly This Is the Son of God. And we started on Thursday night looking at the account of Matthew and the trial, the death, and now we'll be looking at the resurrection of Jesus going from Thursday night through Friday morning and for Sunday today. And um, As we look at this um, in this moment, we in many ways today are moving towards a tomb. Uh, After everything that's taken place over the last um, few days as we've looked at the account of of the journey that Jesus walked on towards the cross and he has been crucified and he is dead at this point in the the account of Matthew. And this evening we, we move towards a tomb and as we move towards this tomb, we're gonna to see that this, this moment had, had a profound impact on history. This moment had a profound impact on the, the world at large and the way in which it has spoken throughout history. And, and um, this moment, many people have come to and moved towards with different conclusions. And I know that there are many people who come to Easter because you've been dragged here by someone. It's Easter, it's the right thing to do to come to church. If that's you, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry if that's you and that's taken place. And you might be one of those people who pretty much only come to church on Easter every year and you're like, is that all they talk about? The death and resurrection of Jesus? No, no, I promise you throughout the year we talk about many other things on a Sunday we're busy going through the book of Galatians and we unpack many of the beautiful realities of who God is and what He's done and the implications of His death and resurrection throughout the year. And if you're one of those people who've been dragged here and you're like, do you just keep talking about the same thing every week? I would encourage you to join us throughout the year and see what it is that we actually believe and all the things that, that flow out of the realities that we're about to talk about now. And as I've said, this, this account, this reality, this moment in history, has had a profound impact on history and people have landed on different sides of of how to make sense of this moment in history. But those who were closest, those who were eyewitnesses to this moment either ended up rejecting Jesus as a liar and a fraud or they ended up worshiping him as they considered the tomb and its implications. And as we continue the, the account of Matthew tonight, We're gonna be looking at this tomb and we're gonna see how it was a tomb that had been sealed by the authority of the time. We're gonna see that it became an empty tomb and we're gonna look at the claim of this empty tomb. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, as we come to your word tonight, as we celebrate your resurrection, as we come to a story that has been told for over 2,000 years, as many of us have grown familiar and heard this message time and time again, I pray, Father, that You, the living God, the God of this message, would reveal Yourself freshly tonight, that You would speak powerfully to every single person in this room, and that by Your Spirit and by Your Word, we would meet You, encounter You, the living God. Father, don't let this just be another Easter. Change us, we pray. Amen. So as we look at this tomb and move towards the tomb today, we see that it is a sealed tomb. And on Friday, Jeff spoke to us about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus from this account of Matthew And as I've said, this this crucifixion had a profound impact, not just on on history, but those who were there witnessing it take place. And and Jeff showed how Jesus had made the claim, I am the son of God, meaning I am God with you. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. I am the savior of Israel and the world was his claim. And then he made that claim. And as he he died, there was a soldier there who said, as he witnessed the, the reality of the crucifixion, the events that took place, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. And from the soldier into history, there's just been this impact of this moment. So much so, there's a, there's a famous modern historian called Tom Holland, and he is an atheist and a historian. That's what he is. He writes books on history. And he wrote a book called Dominion, looking at the reality or the impact that this um, moment in history had had on history. And he said that the the Christian faith, you can't deny, if any historian wants to try and deny the beauty and the impact of the Christian faith on history, they're blind to the reality of history and they're not looking at it with honesty. He actually argues that any sense of empathy or compassion or sense of humans having rights never existed until this moment in history in the person of Jesus that it was him who ushered in these ideas and concepts of compassion and mercy and humans having value. He writes this about the, the crucifixion of Jesus, Tom Holland, he writes this. The condemned man after his sentencing was handed over to soldiers to be flogged. Next, because he had claimed to be the king of the Jews, his gods mocked him and spat on him and set a crown of thorns on his head. Only then, bruised and bloodied, was he led out on his final journey. Hauling his cross as he went, he stumbled his way through Jerusalem, a spectacle and an admonition to all who saw him, and onward along the road to Golgotha. There, nails were driven into his hands and feet, and he was crucified. After his death, a spear was jabbed into his side. There is no reason to doubt the essentials of this narrative. Even the most skeptical historians have tended to accept them. It's amazing, Tom Holland, as he recounts the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, arrives at the conclusion as he considers the gospels and the four accounts that there is absolutely no reason to reject these accounts as historical. Yes, Tom Holland might not believe that these are the divine inspired words of God, but he definitely believes that they're historical historically accurate and credible documents. And that the people who wrote these believed what they wrote, believed that they saw what they saw and experienced what they experienced. So confident were they in the truth of their message that they they made it easy for people to go and double check their facts. They wrote near the time of the events. They told of the place, they gave timelines and they gave names of the people involved. Those who wrote the Gospels weren't trying to hide anything. They were trying to give everybody the evidence that they needed to go and look at these things for themselves. And Tom Holland would go on to argue, these are historically accurate and credible documents. Some of the most credible that we have, and there's no reason. In fact, true historians don't doubt their credibility. And in these accounts, we have this man that I've been speaking about, this soldier that Jeff revealed, spoke to us about on Friday who found himself at the end of the crucifixion when he saw the skies go dark, the earth shake, and Jesus uttered the words that he uttered. He found himself declaring, truly, this man was the Son of God. This soldier would have crucified many people the soldier would have known crucifixion. The soldier was a cold and callous soldier who mocked Jesus before crucifying him. He had grown numb to the pain that he inflicted on people that he crucified. But when it came to the crucifixion of Jesus, he stood there and he said, there was something different about this one. There was something different about this person. And there's almost a fear or a, or a hesitation in his voice as you look at the past tense of it. Truly, this was the Son of God. It's as if he's going, what have, what have we done? What have I been a part of? This has been so unique and so different. And he starts questioning his actions and his part to play in the crucifixion of this man. But the point is this, that no matter what, the events of the crucifixion, no matter what he now thought about the claims of Jesus, the reality was Jesus was dead. And no, not only was Jesus dead, but that he had been crucified. you see, Jesus' claim was that he was divine, that he was the Messiah, that he was the sent one of God, that he was God with us. And for the Romans, they would have gone, well, that's a big claim but only the truly great, only the truly powerful can claim divinity. And not only have you been murdered, but you were crucified. And the reality about crucifixion is that it wasn't just death, it was shame. Crucifixion was saved for the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low. If you were a Roman citizen who'd committed a crime, you would never be crucified. It was too disgusting a way to die for a Roman citizen to be killed that way. And Jewish people didn't crucify. They would stone people for the crimes of Jesus. Brutal, but quick death. No, crucifixion was literally saved for the lowest in society and the most vile of society. And so not only is Jesus at this moment dead, not only is a soldier going, questioning who was this man who we who killed, Any claim to divinity for a Roman citizen or someone of the Roman Empire that Jesus made would have been rejected simply on the fact that he died on a cross and that he deserved nothing but shame. And for the Jews, it would be impossible to believe that their Messiah would die, let alone die at the hands of the occupying force of the Romans. So Tom Holland goes on to say this, speaking about this reality, he goes, divinity then was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. The ultimate offensiveness though, was to the one particular people, Jesus' own, the Jews. There was no way that people would believe the claims of Jesus, not just because he was dead, but because he had been crucified. He wasn't just dead, but his life and his claims were now covered in the shame of the cross. And this is the moment, this is where we we pick up the narrative of Matthew in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Well, who's Joseph? Well, we know that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. We know that Joseph was part of the Sanhedrin, which is Jewish religious leader at the time, a sect of the the leadership. We know that the Sanhedrin and Joseph did not want Jesus to go through what he went through. They did not consent to the actions being taken against Jesus, that he was a man of high standing and influence because he had access to Pilate and the ability to go and ask for the body of Jesus and give him a burial rather than his body being discarded on the mass graves of those crucified. And what we see in this moment as Joseph moves towards Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus is that everybody at that time believed that Jesus was dead. The soldiers who had crucified him The authorities, Pilate, the Jewish authorities, and even his disciples, those who loved him and had compassion for him, believed that Jesus was dead. So much so that Joseph wraps him in cloth and puts him in a tomb. And as modern society looks back, there's this strange claim um, sometimes put forward that maybe Jesus' resurrection can be accounted for by the fact that he actually recovered from his wounds and that he'd actually never died. But the reality is that he was scourged, he was beaten. He had to carry his own cross, he was crucified. And once he'd suffocated to death on a cross, they stabbed a spear into his side to make sure that he was dead. At that point in time, even modern medicine would struggle to revive and save the life of Jesus. Let alone, he was simply taken off that cross, wrapped in cloth, and put in a tomb without any water, medical care, or food, and the tomb was sealed. The claim that Jesus never died goes against the accounts themselves. Jesus was dead, and everyone at that time, whether for Him or against Him, believed that He was dead. And in this moment of Jesus clearly being dead, in his humanity, he's lost control over what happens to his body. He's lost control at the point that he breathed his last, what would happen to his body, which is why Matthew is so clear when he says in verse 57, there came a rich man, Joseph. Why does Matthew feel the need to to explicitly tell us that Joseph was a rich man? Well, you see, hundreds of years, before Jesus would even be born in the book of Isaiah, God would give the prophet Isaiah a prophecy about the Messiah. And there's this messianic prophecy about the death of Jesus and that he would die with the wicked as if he were wicked, but be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53 verse nine. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Matthew knows but it is incredibly significant that Joseph was a rich man because that is what Isaiah had spoken about and would be the inevitable outcome of the body of Jesus, is that he would be crucified alongside two criminals as if he were a wicked criminal, but that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And so even in the way that Jesus is buried, even in the way that Jesus is removed from the cross and what happens to his body is a whisper that God is at work, that God is doing something. And it's incredibly sad that the religious leaders of the Jewish people who were the very people of God, who had the scriptures of God, who, had, who understood the ways of God, who'd read about this coming Messiah were missing the very work of God in front of them. And not only were they missing the work of God, they were trying to suppress the work of God in front of them. Look at verse 62. And the last fraud will be worse than the first fraud. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Again, we see here evidence that everyone believed that Jesus was dead. The authorities of the time were not worried that Jesus would come back to life. The authorities of the time were worried that the disciples would lie and say that Jesus had come back to life and that they would go and steal his body and hide his body as an evidence to their claim. And so all the centers of power at the time collude together to make sure that no false resurrection can take place. And what we see is we see Jewish authorities go to Pilate, which is a represented Roman authority, and they say, what can we do to make sure that there is no fraudulent claim able to be made. And again, it is so sad that the very people of God would rather side and collude with Romans who were oppressing them than even just ask the question, what if this is a work of God? What if this is a work of God? How is it that those who had everything they needed to see what was happening in front of them were missing it and were blind to it? Pride, pride. They were terrified of losing their their status and their authority and their influence and their leadership and the positions that they had and all that that afforded them. So important were the kingdoms that they built for themselves that they refused to see that the kingdom of God was breaking into human history. And actually this is what the Bible would say is probably the simplest definition of sin is pride. A blindness to see God for who he is. That was the great lie that we believed is that we could live lives independent from God. So often people come to me and say, how do I know if I've been in rebellion to God? How bad do the things I've done have to be? I'm like, it's actually not about what you've done. It's about you live your life referencing God as King and Creator because that's the great rebellion, is that we want his creation. We want everything that is good. We want everything that, all the blessings that flow from him, but we want them independent of him. We want the kingdom and the riches of the kingdom of God without the king. We wanna be king. And that's what the Bible would call sin. And, and they were blind to the very work of God in their midst, and they were actively working with the enemies of God, the Roman Empire, those that oppressed them, to suppress the work of God. And they go to Pilate and they ask for soldiers and Pilate gives them soldiers. A guard of soldiers is not one or two, it's like a platoon of soldiers are given to go and guard the tomb of Jesus. And these are battle-hardened, conquering soldiers. These are soldiers that knew conquest. These are soldiers that knew what it was to occupy foreign lands. These are soldiers that had, in the most brutal time of war in history, had seen close combat. This was not ADT and Chubb being sent to the tomb. (laughs) This was the military being sent to the tomb. Hardened soldiers. Those representing the might of an empire that had conquered many nations. The full authority of the Roman Empire sent to the tomb. And what of the tomb? Well, it's sealed. It's sealed. Well, we know that the rock was there. The rock was there as part of Joseph's tomb. What does it mean that the the tomb was sealed? Well, we, we get a clear description of what it meant for an authority or a king to seal a tomb in Daniel 6, when Daniel is thrown to the lions. It says this in Daniel 6, verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and a king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might change concerning Daniel. And so Pilate would have sealed the tomb, they would have sealed the, the rock to the tomb, and there would have been a signet seal put on that tomb, the signet of Pilate, along with the backing of the religious leaders of the time, saying, "Nothing will change concerning the body of Jesus. If anybody tampers with this tomb, the full weight and might of the Roman Empire and all the authority vested in me will be brought down on that person. And the tomb was sealed. They stamped their authority on the rock and they said, nothing will change concerning the body of Jesus. Given that reality, it's actually amazing that there is any account or any story in human history that at the center of human history, a a moment in time that split human history in two, there was an empty tomb. There was an empty tomb. And how a tomb sealed by the the greatest, mightiest empire of the time became empty is phenomenal. It's Matthew 28 tells us how it is that this tomb became an empty tomb. Matthew 28 verse one. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. It's beautiful through how through this narrative, Matthew has honored these faithful women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, not, not Jesus' mother, the disciples of Jesus. He's honored them, he, he speaks of how they were faithful, they were there at his crucifixion, they were there at his burial, and now three days later they returned to the tomb. They loved him, they had compassion for him, and they were with him, and it is phenomenal faithfulness if you consider the reality that all the other disciples were scattered in fear and confusion. Even the 12 were scattered in fear and confusion. But these women remained with Jesus through it all. But it's not just their faithfulness that's incredible. It's also that Matthew stays true to the fact that they are the ones who witnessed this moment and account for it. In fact, if, they, if Matthew wanted to do give a false account of a resurrection, he would have made sure that it was a few men who had arrived at the tomb to witness these things because the witness of men was far more credible than the witness of women in those days. And again, we have an evidence that Matthew's not trying to hide anything, he's simply trying to say it as it is. And he gives the accounts of these women and their experience at the tomb in this moment. And what they experience in this moment and what they witness is the very power and glory of heaven descending on earth. The authority and power of heaven meets the authority and power of man. And what happens? The stone becomes a chair for God's messenger. I love it. Verse two, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. It's like, this is a great place. Thank you for the stone, guys. I'm just gonna sit here and tell everybody what's actually taking place here. It's quite comfortable. Thank you for the stone. It becomes nothing more than a stool for a heavenly being. What about the battle-hardened soldiers? What happens to them in this moment? These men who would have seen close combat. Verse four. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. Just a mere reflection of the glory of God in a heavenly being renders these soldiers useless, finished, unable to do anything. And what of the seal representing the full authority of Pilate and the Roman Empire? the one that declared that nothing would change according to the body of Jesus. What happened to that seal? In this moment, it is ignored. The stone is rolled away and the seal is broken. What does that moment tell us? What does that moment tell us about Jesus? What that moment tells us about Jesus is that the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities said this of Jesus when they crucified him. They said, Jesus, you will come and stand trial because of our authority. And because of our authority, we condemn you as a blasphemer. And under our authority, we will mock you for the things you've said. And because of our authority, we will put a crown of thorns on your head. And because of our authority, We will tell you, Jesus, to carry this cross to your death. And because of our authority, we will nail you to this cross. And because of our authority, we will leave you there until you breathe your last breath. And because of our authority, we will put your body in this tomb and we will say it. And we will say, by our authority, nothing will change about your dead body. And in this moment, as the authority of heaven meets the authority of man and completely and utterly disregards it and reveals that just a mere reflection of the authority, the power and the glory of God can render the most hardened soldiers useless. What we learn is that what actually took place was Jesus went and he stood before the authorities of the time. He said, by my authority, I will stand here and let you falsely accuse me. By my authority, I will stand here and let you put a crown of thorns on my head and mock me. By my authority, I will choose to pick up this cross and I will walk towards my death. And we have learned in the book of Galatians that he would do that by his authority so that he could say to someone like Paul and Paul could declare, he loved me and gave himself for me. By my authority, I give myself freely. By my authority, I hang on a cross. By my authority, I breathe my last breath. And as Jesus breathes his last breath, he continues to give the gift of breath to those whom he created, even though they hang him on a cross. So powerful is this moment. So kind is this moment that a soldier would stand there and go, we've done something wrong here. Who have we killed? And the thing that he missed was that he had partaken in it, but Jesus had done it by his authority. And Jesus declares in this moment, I will have the last word over my body because I am the ultimate authority in the universe. And he is raised from death to life. I spoke about sin and the pride of humans. And the Bible doesn't mince its words about our condition. It says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have lived life without reference to God. And what that means is that we all have a seal on our souls. And it is the seal of sin which declares that we are guilty and condemned. And the enemies of God and our sin and the righteousness of God stands against us. And the enemies of God would say that that seal means nothing will change concerning you. You are guilty and you are condemned. But when Jesus went to a cross willingly, and when the power of heaven broke into that moment and broke that seal, what it meant is that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and believes he is who he says he is and has done what he said he would do, he would break the seal on that soul and he would say that sin and death and condemnation do not have the final say over your soul. I speak a new word over you in that moment. I speak over you, beloved. I speak over you, redeemed, saved, forgiven, not guilty, son, daughter, of mine. And Jesus can do that because he is the ultimate authority and because he went to the cross on our behalf. And there is a great irony in this moment. There really is this moment of irony where, where the great authorities of Humanity have conspired to make sure that there is absolutely no way that a fraudulent resurrection claim can take place. And they send this guard of soldiers, they seal the tomb, they almost set the stage that no human could intervene in the body of Jesus. No one's gonna believe that these women came along and overthrew these soldiers and moved this boulder. Their act of making sure that there was no fraudulent claim set the scene for the most likely reason for an empty tomb being that God in His power did something. God in His power was at work. And after this moment, there would be two claims that came out of the tomb. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread amongst the Jews. That's the first claim to come out of the tomb. And what this moment is like is a moment that actually happens quite often in the Kruger household. Leila loves to see how doing naughty things will play out. But she doesn't always want to be the one who experiences the full consequences of how these naughty things will play out. So <laughs> I'll say something like, no, Leila, you can't draw on the wall. And you can see her think like, but I really want to see what happens when someone draws on the wall. She sidles up next to her little brother. Nathan, take this. If you draw on the wall, I'll give you my toys. And he takes it absolutely oblivious to what's about to happen. <laughs> Corruption starts young. <laughs> the funniest thing is she thinks I can't hear her. Her whisper is like a shout. But that's exactly what's happening here. And I find it a little bit amusing that, that only some of the gods return into the city. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know, the reason I find it amusing is because I'm like, are they, are they still recovering from being rendered useless by the glory of God. Only half of them compass mentis and able to go back to the city or are they trying to secure the tomb? I'm not sure which one it is. But half of them return back into the city and as they return back into the city, it is also interesting that they don't go to their commanding officer or pilot, probably out of fear because they know that, that Jesus' body is no longer there and they're gonna be accused of dereliction of duty, which was the sentence of which was death. And so they knew that their very lives We're at risk. And so they return to the Jewish leaders and they say, these events have taken place. How do we make sense of them? What should we do? And it's almost as if the Jewish religious leaders are the ones that they thought would actually have the answers to these incredible events that took place. And yet again, we see the blindness of these leaders. This is the scary thing about human pride and blindness is that they don't once stop and even just ask the question, what if? what if these accounts are true? What does it mean that these things might be actually happening? They've turned a blind eye to the incredible miracles and numerous eyewitnesses of these miracles through the life of Jesus. They've turned a blind eye to the centurion who witnessed the crucifixion. He said, guys, something's something's up, this is different. And now they turn a blind eye again as these soldiers return to them saying, these things have happened. If the soldiers had returned saying, disciples arrived, we got overthrown, they got into the tomb, there'd be no need for money. There'd be no need for money and lies. And I love how it says, a sufficient sum. Is this enough for you to lie? Is this enough for you to lie? Have we reached the amount where you're willing to lie? And it would have been a substantial amount because these soldiers would have been risking their lives. Which is why they promised, don't worry, if this gets back to Pilate, if this gets back to your commanding officers, we will protect you. We will lie on your behalf. You see, there is a massive scandal taking place here. A covering of the truth. And that pretty much always happens when money's involved. It's a... It's an interesting scandal. So you got Charles Coulson. He was involved in that great Watergate scandal. He was one of the 12 men involved in the Watergate scandal. And um, he became a Christ follower afterwards. And this is what he says about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was, everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. Again the scandal of the cross stands as an evidence that probably it happened. The payment of these guards stands as an evidence that the religious leaders were trying to hide something. And that's the power of human pride. But here's the real problem with their story. Here's the real problem with their claim. Is that the claim was never that the tomb is empty. The claim was never, we lost the body of Jesus, therefore he must have risen. That was never the claim of the tomb. The claim of the tomb is that he is alive and that you can meet him, you can encounter him, you can experience him and you can have relationship with him. This is what, Excited the woman who who witnessed these things. Look at verse 5. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. That's where their story starts. He is not here. But the claim of the tomb is this He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then they leave and they run and they, they run and they leave the tomb and they go, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I love that moment. Greetings. It's like everything that they've just been through. Everything that he's just been through. It's like, did you ever doubt? Did you ever doubt? Obviously, greetings, here I am. Like I said, I would be and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. These women are full of awe and wonder and worship, not because the tomb is empty, but because they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And they fell down at his feet and they laid their hands on the resurrected body of Jesus as they looked, laid hold of his feet and they worshiped him as God. Truly, this is the son of God was the declaration of their heart. And this is what makes the Christian claim unique. Not an empty tomb, but that people today encounter the living, resurrected Jesus. Yes, it's different to how they did. But by his spirit and through his word, we can encounter him and know him and be in relationship with him. We're in the book of Galatians and we've heard how Paul was a persecutor and a hater of the church and a murderer of the people of the church. And he has an encounter, not with an empty tomb, but with the resurrected Jesus. And he goes from a hater and a murderer of the people in the church to one who would declare this great gospel. That's why Lee Strobel says this, Paul himself says that he was converted to a follower of Jesus because he had personally encountered the resurrected Jesus. So we have Jesus' resurrection attested by friend and foe alike, which is very significant. You see, for 2,000 years, the church has been growing and the gospel has been taking root and transforming every kind of culture on every single continent in hundreds of nations around the world, not because there is an empty tomb, but because Jesus is alive and he is powerfully at work in this world and the lives of people. And if you're one of those people who come Easter after Easter, I want to release you from the religious activity of coming year in and year out and thinking that you're hearing a message about an empty tomb. My fear is that 40, 50, 60 years of just coming once a year to hear a message about an empty tomb is gonna shrivel your soul and make you cold to the truth of the gospel and the message of the tomb and the message of Jesus. What is on offer this evening is not a story about an empty tomb. It is an invitation to meet Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, when you encounter Jesus by His Spirit, What will take place in you is that your soul will not shrivel, but it will start to expand. It will find the very person it was made for and it, like these women, will start to worship and be full of awe and wonder and delight and the very goodness of God. And so what we want for you is not a shriveled soul of religious activity but a soul that experiences the goodness of Jesus himself, the resurrected one. And every single person in this room who calls himself a Christ follower is a Christ follower, not because they intellectually ascended to the claims of the death of Jesus in the empty tomb, but because they encountered Jesus himself. They know what it is to have the seal of condemnation and guilt broken over their life and the seal of Christ placed on them and to walk in the freedom and the delight and the goodness of all that he is and all that he's done. That's just an offer this evening. That's the message of the tomb. Now there are many testimonies of us in the room who have experienced that reality, but we're gonna look at one by Sai, which is awkward because we didn't know he'd be leading the moment, meeting this evening and doing his testimony on screen. But I think he might have even worn the same shirt, so it works out well, okay. Let's turn our attention to the screens.
0: My name is Sainos Naika, and this is my story. I grew up in a family of five and I was the youngest and we grew up with an alcoholic and often violent father. He brought a lot of anxiety and trauma into our lives until my parents divorced when I was 12. I practiced Hinduism because that's what my family believed. Until things changed up when my elder sister was the first to come to faith, she came home to us and told us about this God that she had met. And it really confused me and made me quite curious because I thought, Faith was just something you were given and inherited by from your parents. I remember my second elder sister, um, after that sister, being very upset uh, about my sister coming and speaking this truth and this gospel. And she was very resistant, but a friend of hers actually took her to Common Ground. After a run, she sort of said, hey, can you come through to church with me? I'm gonna be late. And she heard the gospel for the first time and was moved by it, and subsequently heard God saying that, he's her father and then she became this amazing evangelist and like came and told us all about god and i was so shocked by this because she was not you know interested in jesus when i moved to cape town to study this was the opportunity she'd been waiting for to show me her god and to be honest when i first came to church at common ground i wasn't completely sold i didn't understand this god who was offering His grace for free. It it didn't make any sense to me. And I wondered, what did I have to do? The simplicity of the gospel confused me so much, coming from a space of understanding karma and good and right and getting what you put into the world. But this God's offer was for free and it blew my mind. Um, I knew that He was God. Three months in, I remember seeing that this was the one true God, but I couldn't believe His offer was free. Eventually, God revealed to me that He's God and He gets to decide how things work. That's what it means for God to be God. And I had to play by His rules, and He says that His Son can die for my life, and I can receive this grace for free. I realized that I couldn't close the gap between myself and God, and I really needed Jesus Christ to come and die for my sins so that that gap could be closed. Remarkably, while I was coming to faith, my mother was having a very similar experience in Durban. She had called me after my first experience at church and she'd wondered how did it go and whether she should also check things out as she had passed one that day. And I said, definitely, you should totally check it out. We can go on this journey together. And I remember us sharing calls on a Sunday, just saying, what do you think of the sermon? Oh, this God is very interesting. This is so different from anything we've ever known. So God has deeply changed me and my biological family. But I can't tell you about the amazing grace that he has shown me through my spiritual family at Common Ground. In my story, I grew up without a father who I could ask for wisdom and guidance. But coming to faith and learning of my heavenly father, I've really had that completely turned around for me. I remember a day when I was driving back from church and it was just such a faithful moment. All these thoughts came into my mind of just how I changed, how I used to be this way and now I'm this way. I used to be like that. I used to be timid and now I'm more bold. I used to be like this and now I'm like that. And I wondered, why was I so different? And I just felt God saying to me, that's because you're my son and I'm raising you. I'm truly your father. That's what it means for me to be your father. is that I raise you and I love you and I come alongside you and I change you and I make you more like me. Just recently, my mom, after 10 years of knowing him, decided to be baptized and be obedient to his word. And it was just such a moment of highlighting to me how God never leaves us the way he finds us. He changes our lives from the inside out.